0: you're listening to Good Grief, a podcast about grief and how we develop, learn and form meaningful traditions around it. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Good Grief. I'm Jake Gearing. This week I'm talking to a good friend of mine, Theo Trambolinus. Theo is from Sussex but currently resides in Surrey with his wife Anya, which is where we record the conversation, And amongst other things, he runs his own business called Nature Days, teaching kids about nature and making the outdoors more accessible. Uh, And this was recorded in April. uh, And a a warning for many of you out there, there is a lot of swearing. I mean, it's not full of swearing, but there's, there's more than the usual. Now, Theo lost his dad when he was just 12 years old. Um, and he's also currently looking after his mum along with his siblings Alex and Marita their mum has assignments so there is full time care going on there and another warning kind of uh, this is a very rambly chat so we go all over the place in this episode Um, obviously we concentrate on um the two main subjects of both losing his father and what it's like at the moment with his mum. But yeah, there is lots of conversation about lots of different things. Like I say, we talk about his dad in quite an in-depth way and losing him at such a young age. It's quite a deep part of the conversation in which there are plenty of tears um, from both of us. So just a warning for any of you listeners out there that... Uh, Be prepared to cry or not, but it's there if if, if you have been warned. We also talk about the experience of losing someone whilst they're still here, which is his mother in this case, losing her memories and recollection of actually who Theo is, which is a really challenging conversation, actually. Theo talks about something that I feel quite conflicted about, but I felt like we should keep it in the podcast. And that is the idea that if his mum, if he could solve it all for his mum and give her a pill to end it all, he would. And I I find that really challenging. Um, I know a lot of people out there will be feeling that way. But I also realise there will be plenty of people out there that won't feel that way and feel the opposite. But I personally don't agree with him on this issue and I do push him on it. But I also wanted this conversation to be as unedited as possible and as honest as possible. So this is his viewpoint and I didn't want to edit that out. So whilst there's lots of uh, heartfelt stuff in there and challenging stuff, uh, we, talked about, we talked about lots of other things. And the first thing we talked about was how we met in India many moons ago. Um, And that's where the conversation begins. We met on one of those, one of your travels. We did. um, In India. Yes. Now I just want to talk just a little bit Mm -hmm. about what happened there, because it's all a bit of a blur to me. Yes. Um, we turned up at Pie in the Sky? Sky Pie. Sky Pie. Sky Pie Cafe. Sky Pie Cafe, which is in Dharamsala.
1: Bag Sunag. just outside, yep.
0: Ooh, yeah. Oh, it's even better. McLeod Ganj, just outside McLeod Ganj. in it. fact. Yeah. Um, which is in the Himalayas, for mm-hmm. anyone listening. Um, and we didn't know each other. I didn't know anyone. I was there by myself. Were you there by yourself?
1: I think that morning I just dropped off my girlfriend at the time at the train station so she could go back to Bombay and fly back to England. So I think I'd just come back that morning and was sat down there by myself, probably with a chessboard set up or something like that. I think it was probably back coming. Probably was, but I probably wasn't that good at chess at that point.
0: Anyway. (laughs) Mm-hmm. How do we start talking? Because I don't remember that bit.
1: I don't remember that bit too well, but I do remember... I do remember that there was me, and then I'm sure there was Dorje, and then I think there was Anthony. Yep. And then, or you might have been there, and Russ... But all of a sudden, just this group of people just sat down. Yeah. You know, and it just began from there.
0: So... Uh just to explain this as well to so everybody else listening, the um we all individually met and in this in this courtyard in this in this guest house in mm-hmm. India where we were all travelling separately mm-hmm. and then we just all decided that we were travelling the rest of India with each other yes. as well. It's like that's it, we're doing this. Yeah. We even had a kind of a leaving party at the end of it, yes. didn't we? With with Sangria, the, the, the which was essentially light. essentially fruit. <laughs> fruit and <laughs> booze in a bucket cheap indian booze Yes. Yeah. And, and, and pineapple lordy spice. did we feel bad um yeah. but we just immediately hit it off yeah i think uh a a uh similar love for Chaz and dave yes i'm not sure how quickly that came up but it did come up mm-hmm. um but i don't know what it was but it was just like oh we we're friends, yes, and we will be friends now. Exactly That's that. it. That's done. Yeah. There was no denying it. There was a kind of magic to that. Yeah, um, and this was in two thousand one, two thousand two, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it is twenty years. Do you know what? Actually, the year would
1: have been two thousand and four, two thousand and five, two thousand and four. Oh. I do remember now. Two thousand and four. It must have been because yes, it was two
0: thousand and four. Um, what sent you to
1: India? On that, the beauty of never seeing each other as much as we should do, you'd never even, it, it's not like, it could be 10 years, it could be 20 years, and the conversation would still be exactly the same. I love that. Yeah. You know, I love that. It makes yeah. it so
0: easy. What, what was the question? Uh, what took, brought you to India?
1: Um, first time I was at college, and I heard that um, things were cheaper in India. <laughs>
0: Because That is a magical story. It was,
1: it was. And that is literally what took me there to begin with. But I don't know why India, because there's so many other countries where you could have gone. Um And yeah, what a, what a wall that turned out to be. I mean, know. right.
0: I mean, I didn't even want to fucking go. Really? Um, like I was only going, well, for complicated relational reasons. Mm-hmm. Um But Uh, Yeah, I I just thought India was a cliche and uh, Mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel like a kind of, you know, voyeuristic tourist turning up and being like, oh yeah, like I'm going to take advantage of things being cheap. You know, it just felt like, I don't want to do this Mm -hmm. Um, and turned up and immediately hated it um, because I was in Delhi Um, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until I was in tears in an internet cafe and writing an email back to someone that I knew that had been to india and going what the fuck i need to get out of here now Mm -hmm. this is awful these two german guys came up to me and were like are you all right and i was like no no i'm really not (laughs) um and they basically sat down with me and was like look delhi's awful Mm -hmm. um especially on the road. Yeah. Mm, bazaar, bizarre. Um, and I'd been ripped off a few times, and I just, like, it was so hot, and I'd just come from Japan, where everything was obviously the Clean. exact opposite. Yeah. Um, and they would just, like, get out straight away, and I was like, but I don't know where to go, I'm by <laughs> myself. And they were just like, these are some good options, and just went through, um, I think, the Lonely Planet at the time. Um, and I randomly picked... Well, I w- went to Amritsar to the mm-hmm. Golden Temple, but then I picked a route to then go to McLeod Gange. Perfect. So it was these two German guys that were just like took pity on me mm-hmm. and said, "Get, get out!" And as soon, soon as mm. I was out, it was like, "Oh, this is bliss. Yeah, this is so good." Glad of that. And then I had one of the best journeys I've ever had in my life.
1: Really? Yeah. Well, I met yeah. you guys, yes. and then we
0: like that journey up to Leh. Oh. one of the most wonderful, work. incredible experiences I've ever had. Yeah. So we're here to talk about both of your parents Mm -hmm. um, in regards to the theme of this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, One was your dad, Mm -hmm. who you lost at 13, were you?
1: Day before my 13th birthday.
0: Day before your 13th birthday. Which we'll talk about. Um, But also your mum is suffering from dementia at the moment. And Alzheimer's, yeah. And Alzheimer's. She's in that world. Okay. Now, when... Most people lose a loved one. It's you know it could be over an illness like cancer or something. You know, they slowly you know it's coming, but mm-hmm. you're kind of grieving their death as, as they come, um, as they go. Sorry, um, and sometimes it can be out of the blue. And then there's a there's a there's a grief process that works there. How is this grief manifesting itself with somebody that is here? Mm-hmm. And talking to you, that things are changing slowly with their mm. mental stability. How's that? How's that worked for you? How's that?
1: I guess at the moment, because I'm in it, I have no way of. I think I'm understanding that I can step out and observe it. I can observe what's going on. But I said this to Anya two nights ago. At the moment, I have no idea who I am or what I'm supposed to do, or I just got. No idea about anything. Don't ask me because I have no idea. All I know is at the moment that I have to, to keep doing the things that I need to do in order to move forward in some way or another mm. because we've got to be there minimum of two nights a week to look after mum and there's all the other things we need to do just to get through life, whether it be bills or work, etc., etc. So at the moment I feel like I'm just a bit of a robot inside of this all. With regards to mum... I had a, uh, two weeks ago, I had, I was walking Bondi just outside and I thought to myself, I really miss her, you know, because obviously mum's still there. And I don't really call her mum anymore. I call her Sylvia Ann because that's her name. Because she's no longer necessarily my mum. She is my mum. The physical body is there, but she's not being my mum because she is who she is now. You know, it's like this change of personality, this change of, um, this regression of person and that sometimes she doesn't even know who I am. When I say sometimes, I mean pretty much all the time. There's there's a, a 20 second window, maybe 30 second a week when she knows who I am. After thinking, oh, I know your name. And so, yeah, it's a, uh, I really miss her and that she knew me better than anybody else. And I knew her really well as well. You know. And that sunshine that she had, whether it was no matter what time of year, she just had a sunshine and she had a smile and she had a a way about her and and she still has that inkling, that foundation. You know, of that there, and we have a laugh. We have a really good laugh, but it's um, it's no longer Mum. It's Sylvia Ann who I'm having a laugh with, which is a wonderful thing. It's always a real privilege, you know, to be having this fun with this this girl from the 1950s, <laughs> the 1940s. You know, she's a wonderful person, um, and yeah, it's got some great qualities. But it is like like someone was saying recently: it's the long goodbye isn't it? Which is a vast difference from when dad died, which was just like, uh, gone. You know, gone. Thinking that you're going to see him again. Whereas, with mum, now, you've been through in the last few weeks, I've definitely started to have anxiety and I've started, as I said to you, i started doing this mindfulness meditation, etc. because my heart's been racing and my breathing has gone absolutely crazy and I realise I've just got so much in my head, you know, four different jobs. Anya, mum, the dog. When am I going to get to go fishing so that I can just relax or do what I need to do when I go fishing?
0: The thing with your... Changing the name that you call you what was what you once called your mum. Mm-hmm. For, do you feel like you've had time to process the loss of your mum? Because actually, it must be quite strange having in in for all intents purposes your mother standing with mm-hmm. you, but she's not meeting you in the same ways you've yeah. always known her. Yeah. So, is there a part of you that? has let go of her or do, do you think you've grieved the loss of your mum or do you think there's part of you that's still... Mm.
1: Good question.
0: ...connected Good a- question. and so therefore you're getting a different personality from the same person?
1: I think I noticed this not on the birthday just gone in January but the birthday before when I went round to see her and I go around every birthday to see my mum and she tells me the same story about it was a Saturday afternoon, it snowed. Man United had just won and they walked in and they said, who'd had the elephant, you know, because I was a big baby. <laughs> and so I went around on this particular occasion and it was the first time that she, she almost looked straight through you, you know. Mm. There was none of that there. And we were standing outside and I, I was crying in the middle of the street, crying because I've never seen that look on my mum before. That was a weird thing. I think that was when I just started to process it a bit more. And kind of, up until then, I knew that it was on the way, but I never thought that I would be... Because out of of me and my two siblings, my brother and my sister, I'm the first that she's forgotten, you know? I'm the first that's been questioned Mm -hmm. with regards to um, who am I? Or is... Ah, uh, Theo and Anya stealing from me, or you know, just these because that that happens, you know, inside of dementia, they suddenly start losing things and start thinking that people are stealing from them. So, and the fact that it came to me was like, whew, you know, wow. And we had lots of. It caused a ruckus in in some respects. You know, it caused a uh, just a my brother was trying to do the best that he could whilst trying to see what was actually going on with mum. And he, he made a suggestion that maybe you don't go around there for a while. And I, was, I thought, yeah, okay, maybe that's a good idea. But it wasn't. I just thought, no, I need to be there. I've got to witness this. I've got to see this, mm. you know. And there's, for the 90% of the time when she won't know who I am or be saying negative things, then there'll be the 10% of the time when she does know who I am. And so I'm going to stay for the 10%, mm. you know. And now the ten percent is not even one percent, but I'll stick around for the, you know, the point the one of a percent that is there sometimes when she knows my name, because that's a great thing. That's a really good thing, and um, yeah, it's there have been stages of this, I think the fact that this this began just before, it probably began, started to really start to set in in 2019 and be in 2022 now. So in three years, really seeing the, the steep decline in mum's um, mental capacity and her, her, uh, um, her dementia and and Alzheimer's. Uh, watching that light, fade uh. and there's been some moments where she comes back into the room and she's just she's just there and she, she's conscious of that she knows that she has dementia and she's talking to you like she's mum again Oh, and I remember the first time it happened I'm just like this is just this was wonderful it was a gift you know it was an absolute gift I heard this I had this wonderful saying the other day and, and it, was, it was, I want to call it a religious saying but it doesn't, it's because it mentions the word God doesn't have to be religious but um, it, I think it is if, if you want something and you get it it's because God wants you to have it and if you want something and you don't get it it's because God is protecting you from it you know, it's a beautiful thing I mean you can change the word God to whatever you want the universe works well for me And I remember, I think to myself, there's a few things inside of that that work really well with mum. I have no idea what Alex's time with mum, that's my brother, and my sister's, Marita, time with mum is like. But they must all be slightly different, I'd have thought, down to us and what we say inside of the moment and the way we are with her.
0: If you're going there for the glimpse of that one, now 1% time mm-hmm. that she recognises you, that, it's really making me think that, you know, if someone loses somebody, they, they don't get any time to greet that person again. Yes. So the grieving process goes through, I've lost that person, and then, you know, all the different ways that grief manifests itself through denial and non-acceptance mm-hmm. and... Um, obviously a hell of a lot of upset and everything that goes within the grief camp. But you, de- you don't keep on going. You might, some people might grieve and think, oh, they are coming back. Mm. But they still don't yes. get to meet them.
1: Yes. you
0: Whereas you do. Yeah. So what I'm wondering is, is, are you going through a grief process in which, oh, she's not remembering me. She hasn't remembered me for ages. I've lost her. Yeah. And then, but you're getting joy Mm-hmm. Every time she does remember you, and you have those glimpses, and then are you resetting the grief process straight after that, or is it is it actually no? I'm in it for that for that.
1: Oh no! At the moment, to be honest, and this is real brass tacks, it's just like if there was a pill that mum could take tomorrow and it would end it all, I would give her the pill myself. And give her the pill.
0: Why? Just
1: because she has. It's not even an existence. It's not an existence. It's she is she is so between the lines of life of of reality at the moment. There is no reality for mum at the moment. It's not like I'm going to wake up. I'm going to have a cup of tea. I'm going to put some biscuits in the toaster. Oh,
0: oh. yeah. But you, so, but one person's quality of life is different to another person's quality of life. So she's still alive and she's still functioning. Yep. So she's maybe not doing the things that you would like her to be doing, but she's still.
1: Mm. Is
0: yeah. that decision for you or is it for her? That's a tough one. Huh?
1: For her, if it was for her, she'd take the pill. If she knew, if she knew if she could see it because her own grandfather had it. So she saw it firsthand. Mm-hmm. You know, she saw it firsthand. She says she walks home from work one day and there was her grandfather on the street corner wearing her own coat. And this is like in the 1950s a grandf- an old man wearing a little girl's coat on the side of a street. Mm. She knew that wasn't right, you know. And I do wonder what, what it would be like if mum could see Sylvia Ann right now. You know, she'd be heartbroken. She wouldn't want to do
0: Why that. would she be heartbroken? Because she'd be
1: like, I'm. She she never wanted to cause a fuss. She never wanted to be a burden. She always she used to say this to me as a kid. She said, "I don't ever want to be a burden," you know. And yet now, truth be it is a burden. You know, of course it's a burden. Give up three nights of my life a week to be round there and to. Sometimes cook her dinner if she hasn't eaten her dinner, and get her ice cream, and this after a full day's work, and and then get her to bed and make sure she's wearing a clean nappy, and then get woken up two or three times during the night and speaking to the police at two o'clock in the morning because that's who she's called. It's not my mum. It's not anybody. No, no rational person does that. So, yeah, you could say she but, has a quality of life. But, but would not, you feel
0: differently, say, if she um, if she was suffering, say, from terminal cancer and yeah. so that she was perhaps bedridden yeah. and didn't have a quality of life, the, yeah. w- the one you like, so would be, in inverted commas, a burden because she'd have to have care from the kids and yes. all that kind of stuff. Would you feel the same way as, like, actually, I wish I could end it for her now?
1: I think if she was in pain, do you know what? If mum was terminal, then it's terminal, you know I think we'd have to say all the things that we need to say and accept it because that is just life isn't it that's just that's just it. It's all gonna it's gonna come and it's gonna go and we're not the first people to die. We're not the first people to lose anybody and people will lose someone again and again and again. and I'll die at some point. And it's becoming more and more real the more and more I see it because suddenly you're at that age where you're not going to that more birthday parties. You're hearing about funerals of like Jesus Christ. He was forty. How the hell did Andy die? He was. This happened like last year. A guy called Andy went to college with him, younger than me, and he's dead. I'm like, how the hell did that happen?
0: it's birds just something in the brain. Bang. Well, this is the this is the whole reason why I started this podcast yeah um because I started well I lost one person then another Mm -hmm. and that has been a repeated thing and yeah I think when you get into your 40s that is much more common and then you start questioning your own mortality Mm -hmm. and you start questioning what you don't know about grief Mm -hmm. what you what you haven't learned and the research that I went on and what I learned on that on that path was actually a great deal about other people and other cultures that ha- actually have vibrant traditions around mm-hmm. um, grief and how to look after people and 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 allowing for um, certain yeah. periods of grief. Like I think we don't have traditions around that in the UK, and no. I, uh, and that can be difficult. Uh, I get. But going back to what you're talking about, the the ethical question that you're talking about. If I got, if I tomorrow got a terminal disease, Mm -hmm. when would I want to die? Would I want to die straight away because I know I'm terminal? Mm -hmm. No, because I, I I might live for another 10 years. Yes. Um, At what stage in the illness, you know, at what, what stage do I go, actually I've had enough now. Mm -hmm. And, is it beyond what I could possibly communicate? So maybe I'm non-verbal by the time I've actually gone, oh, that's enough. So who's deciding for me? And I think mm-hmm. the ethical quandary there is why you, why we don't just go, oh, you're terminal. You might as well just die. Yeah. Um, yeah, I
1: hear what you say. I mean, I don't think, obviously, if I found out tomorrow that I was terminal, I'd be like, well, and tomorrow was no different from today in the way that I'm talking to you. I'd be like, okay, so I'm terminal, but I do have time, so there's things I'm going to do what Those things are, are up to me, etc. etc. It's going to be XYZ, but when it gets to the stage where, yeah, I'm just laying in a bed, taking up room, do me a favor, you know, D- just unplug me, unplug me. That's I think that's really key, isn't it? Unplug me, yeah. I mean, but
0: you can make that decision for yourself, right?
1: I don't think if I was laying in a bed and I couldn't do anything about it, then just keeping me alive on a machine, ventilating me is just.
0: I don't know. I mean, for me, I mean, let's not spend too much time on this Mm -hmm. subject, but for me, if I could, if I was in that position on a bed, unable to move, needed 24 hour care, Mm -hmm. but I could still see my kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's enough. That's enough for me to be still alive. Mm. Yeah. Because love is a powerful thing. Yeah. And, you know, them being in the room would be overwhelming. Yes. I think the question then does come down to like, we're, we're talking about dementia and people forgetting mm-hmm. other people. Yes. And then And then is there a, there must be a feeling of rejection, right? Definitely.
1: Definitely. I think on that day on my birthday, that was a massive feeling of rejection. I think that was just like, oh, never been here before. Mm. Never seen this person before, you know. That was definitely rejection. Yeah, yeah. I never thought about it like that actually, but yeah, definitely. And it's not like I go with any go in there, like even for the 0.5% that I get now. I don't go in there expecting it, but I'm like, let's just see if it's there. Give her. A, she, she's so excited to see me. Give her a hug, and I just say to her, "Who am I?" And she goes, "Oh, oh, you're the one who looks like that one. You are." Oh, Theo I go, yeah Theo I go, give her a hug and then we're off out into the unknown again you know but it's just it's just interesting to see if that still works within an hour I'm Michael again
0: you know I'm back to but nobody, not surely no uh, a stranger couldn't walk up to her and just hug her and she'd hug back no that's true
1: I suppose so there's some trust there in you Must be. Know, who you are. But there is trust in that she also lets a carer in, a different carer, sometimes three times a day. Well, she doesn't let them in. A carer comes in, says, Hello, Sylvia, just come in to make you a cup of tea. Just come in, do you want to slice a slice of toast? And sometimes she's in bed. You know, it's, it's early morning, 10 o'clock, etc. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's two o'clock in the afternoon. She might still be in bed, but she has no problem with this person coming in and out of her house, into her room, changing her bin, changing her sheets, making her dinner, eating someone else's food, you know. And sometimes she reminds me of Nan out of, um, is it the Catherine Tate show? You know, <laughs> she's like, oh, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, thank you so much. You know, and she makes a face about whatever it is she's been cooked or whatever foods she's been dished up. Um, yeah. So I have no idea what her reality is of the world or the people in it at the moment. Because most of the time, I don't know if the faces mean anything or the sound of the voice means anything or the things that we do mean anything. or No idea. No idea.
0: How do you think it's obviously? Um, dementia and Alzheimer's is a is a non curable disease, and mm. you know she she will die. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like? No, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I no, do it. How do you how do you, how do you think you'll feel getting to the, when she does eventually die? Interesting. So
1: I think, and this is based upon what I've spoken to other people about, but I already feel like there'll be a relief. There'll Mm. be a relief. There'll be like, oh. She's, She's kind of stuck between two worlds at the moment. You know, this world and the other world, if there is another world or whatever it might be. And at the moment she's stuck inside of that. So I think I would feel... I think about the funeral a lot. I think about what I'm going to say, you know, because I feel like I am going to be leading. I'm not leading it. I think I'm going to get up and, and talk about mum and the things that she loved and the impacts that, whether it be the orchard and all her girls there that used to pick apples with her and John, who was the orchard manager, you know, and Michael, her... Uh, uh, her friend, so after dad died, like about two or three years later, mum was walking the dog and walked past this cottage up Foxbridge Lane and and met Michael, and I mean, Michael's just a rogue, he's a scallywag, he's a country bumpkin, but he made her laugh, and that's a vast difference to the world which she'd had from having a husband and three kids, all of a sudden there was just me, mum, the dog, and this man who was making her laugh again. And that, I think that made her feel really good in life. And a friendship blossomed, and a romance blossomed. And I'll tell Michael this one day. So late at night when I'm putting him to bed, and uh, I, I, I'll, I'll say to her, who am I? And she says, you're my love. And I say, what's my name? She says, you're Michael. I think, oh, <sighs> Michael needs to hear that, you know, because that's who he is for her. Her love. She loved him. They argued and stuff like that. And she turned to piss off every now and again. And he was, if there was ever anybody to put their foot in it at any time and say the wrong thing and be come across as being racist or whatever, or rude. It would be Michael, you know? Yeah. Who knows? But to see that smile on her face was gold, you know? Of, And it wasn't about me. I'm very aware that this is not about me, you know? This is just about doing the right thing by mum. And I think... I think my brother Alex has definitely really shown me that. He hasn't forced anything upon me, but I have seen who he has become in this time. So being the youngest of three and there being like a 10 year gap, there was a massive difference in our lifetimes in that at one point there was, they'd moved out and it was just me and mum, you know, or me, mum and dad. So for years they weren't around. And I just think, why, how could you not be around? How could you not come and see mum? How could you not come and see dad? How could you not do this? And even after dad died, that, and they never were around as much as I thought they should be, could be, would be. But seeing Alex step up to the mark, as um, I've just had this new found respect for him. He's just like, there is a man who does the right thing. And I think it's the first time I've I've really been like. That's what I'm aiming for, someone who does the right thing, and it's the first time i have ever seen him, be that, you know, and that's fucking fantastic. That's mm. just fantastic, so I. Like, I think when she goes, of course I'll definitely cry, and it's weird. I, it's, it's a completely different thing as to what I'd be crying for. Um. And this is something that we might come into a bit later. The idea of a letter has come up recently. And I think I I need to write mum a letter to say all the things that I need to say. The thing with mum is, I've always said what I need to say, you know. I've always said, I've always told her that I loved her. And she's always told me that she loves me. And I've always been very real with mum, you know, like... Five years ago, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, going any further back than when I was 20, before I discovered the world and what other cultures and other people do and how life is perceived outside of this tiny realm called Britain, um, I started to realise that there, there, there is definitely a different way to view Death, which doesn't make me an expert in it or anything like this. And I think this kind of might lead me on to the letter. Which I do need to write, Mum. I think the letter would let me say all the things I need to say, written down, and to get that out of my system. When Mum dies, to answer your question, yes, I will be upset, yes, I will, will cry... But yes, I will celebrate that life. You know,
0: i celebrate that life. What do you need to say in the letter? No idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no idea. I think the letter's going to be, my dearest mum, Sylvia Ann. I have no idea how we got to this place. No idea. And it kind of crept up upon us out of nowhere it'll begin something like that you know there's this we spoke about Chaz and Dave before and there's this one song called The Sunshine of Your Smile yeah and and that's what it was written about you know it was written about her and her sunshine yeah it's a smiler. <sighs>
0: What was your relationship like with your dad?
1: Oh, it's
0: tough to say.
1: Tough to say because it was such a long time ago. You know, I suppose he was always there when he wasn't working. Um, and he took interest in me because he knew that I loved fishing. And he would even come fishing sometimes and things like that. He even came to a sports day once. I um, I really wanted him there because I think he was just disappointed that I didn't win every race or anything like that. Um, I think he had a high expectation of me in that respect. And being, you know, like six foot two at the age of eight, you know, you'd have thought I'd have won a marathon or something like <laughs> you that. You got the legs for it. Exactly that, you know, but I was never really interested in the winning um, side of things or didn't think I could win or was almost scared of the winning. But anyway, that's not really what you asked. It's such a tough one, to be honest, Jay. So my relationship with my dad... He was just my dad. I just loved him the same as I loved mum. I do remember having this thought at a very young age. When I say young, before the age of 10, like if I had to choose, it would be mum. You know, I do remember that. Choose what? If I had to choose between mum or dad, I'd choose mum. Right. You know, because I think um, it was the love I wanted more than anything, you know, and mum was love. Mm -hmm. Mum is love. Um, whereas dad there was a, a condition There was a conditional love You know I think my sister and my brother Were almost politely asked to leave Because they did not meet his expectations On certain parts of their journey You know mm-hmm. They wanted to do what they wanted to do Okay so you go and do what you want to do But you do it by yourself You know Sounds harsh yeah? Sounds harsh But do you know what He never had the dad no one ever showed him the rules. His dad died before he was even born in Albania, of all bloody places, during the war. So
0: it's the day before your 13th birthday. Yes. And your dad dies? Mm-hmm. What happened? He dropped me off
1: at the, the place where I take kids fishing is, was the same place that he dropped me off. So it's Foxbridge Lakes. It was a, a stone story away from where we lived back in the day. He dropped me off on the Friday in the morning um, with my fishing kit and I went fishing and he went home. And when I got home that night, mum said that dad's in hospital. I'm like, oh, okay. No worries. She said she's, he's had a heart attack. I'm like, is he all right? She's like, yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay. I said, can I go and see him? She said, no, not at the minute. He doesn't want to you to see him like this. So maybe next week. So I didn't go over and over. Oh, in over the weekend, and I found the letter. I found the letter that I um sent him recently when I that I wrote when I was a twelve-year-old, uh, and it was I was trying to keep him amused at the time, and maybe trying to appear clever. That I don't know, inside of the letter, so it become the Monday, which was January the seventh. Um, I got home from school. Mum and Marita were at the hospital. Um and I think I I think I cooked my own dinner I think I did I had my dinner and Neighbours was on and stuff like that and just at the end of Neighbours and my dinner Mum and Marita came through the door they'd just been seeing see in intensive care and they came home and it literally Mum put her bag down and the phone rang so she went to answer the phone she said we've got to go we've got to go to hospital we're all going we're going now so we all jumped into the car and um we uh, drove from Ifold to the Royal Surrey in Guildford. It's funny, I've met people that are junior doctors who work at the Royal Surrey and they say, just so you know, don't ever go to the Royal Surrey with a heart condition. It's the worst <laughs> place to go, it really is. I remember going there and on the radio there was uh, Mick Hucknall. Um, uh, stars, uh want to fall in the I remember that very distinctly and we got out of the hospital and and we walked through we walked through a 100 miles per hour I remember walking and walking and walking and, and then we got to this point and mum said to me and Rita wait here and she walks around this corner and I don't know how far around she got half hour half far round this corner she got but all of a sudden there was a scream and me and Rita went round and my mum was on her knees on the floor with her hands on the floor and she was crying and I think it all started to kick in then and that, that she was, something bad had happened and I don't suppose we really knew at that point but we all started crying and didn't really know what we were crying for and then it slowly became apparent that dad was dead and then, and then I kind of the next phase of that was being in this room crying no, so the next phase was Alex turning up and us all crying and us knowing that dad was dead and then we were in this room all crying and then we had the opportunity to go in and see our dad's corpse. <laughs> Fuck. And yeah, Marita was in there and then I think Alex and Marie went in there. Just this lifeless, it's just this piece of meat in the shape of my dad. And then we went home. I don't really remember much after that, but I remember waking up the next morning. And I was 13. And I remember coming down the stairs and uh, sitting down in the chair. And I had no idea what mum was thinking inside her head. How would you even comprehend what is the right thing to do or say inside of this situation when it's your, your youngest son's 13th birthday? 12 hours after his dad's died say, so, you know i forget what happened but i remember coming over to me and at one point saying happy birthday and that was that was a moment and then throughout the day people kept coming neighbors kept coming in lots of hugs lots of tears lots of hugs lots of tears um and then more, more bad news. I think Mum received some bad news. More bad news at some point during that week or that haze or whatever it might have been. And I remember, I remember this: is that Dad always worked so hard, so hard for what amounted to nothing, for nothing. Well fucking pointless, pointless life, to work so hard, to to get so much, and yet to have nothing, to not even get the chance to enjoy, I mean, 49 years old, nothing, nothing, and they say when a Greek man finishes building his house, he dies, and literally, dad had just laid the last brick, he'd just put four bedrooms on top of a bungalow, with a bathroom, four double bedrooms, with a all that stuff you just think, and I think that set my way on life. I think that's I set sail not for his route, but for this route. I don't think my siblings had the choice; they had their own way, you know. But I had—I uh, did have a choice at that point, and I—I I do distinctly remember like this. <laughs> that's just a fucking joke. it's just a joke doing that for nothing what's nothing to to live to work your butt off to do for this so you can have and you can have and you can have and you can have and you can get and you can get and you can get and then for what for
0: nothing well, he had
1: his, he, he his had family. kids he had kids etc cetera, etc cetera. but he did all of that and just at the point where he could have just relaxed nothing And so, yeah, there were good times on the way. There were good times on the way. There were things that happened in the last 10 years before he died where, you know, him and mum were going to get a divorce and this was going to happen and that was going to happen and whatever, et cetera, et cetera. He could have gone to prison. Yeah, there was a a journey, but there was never the destination. You know, never the destination. And I've always tried to be that, I was thinking about this house that we're currently sat in right now, this house mm-hmm. right here, and that one day you're gonna have to leave. You're gonna have to leave this destination, and there's there's more of that that brings me peace than brings me fear. There's more of that that brings me peace because that brings me closer to what we're all going towards anyway at the end of the day, which is ultimately death. You know, no one's getting out of here alive, right? We're all gonna die. And so the fact that things come and they go and they come and they go and we're expecting to, to have something forever and we'll never have it forever. Oops, I want to pull that up. Anyway, yeah, it was a, a pretty fucked up few years. There was no counselling. I went into school probably about a week or two weeks later. My dear friend Ross, <laughs> my dear friend Ross wrote me a letter. I mean, Ross was my fishing buddy and he still is to this day. He's such a wonderful human being, really is. I, uh, if, I think we mentioned this before, you know, the power of 10 tigers. What was that, Thundercats? No. No, the other one. Defenders of the Earth. Defenders of the Earth. Defenders of the Earth. The power of 10 tigers. There are certain human beings that I look towards for the power of, and you, only, you don't need 10 of Ross. <laughs> you don't need 10 of this guy. This is the guy who sat in maths at the back of the classroom and was saying, what is the point of all this? I'm never going to use it. <laughs> and he is now a digger driver, and his entire life is about angles. You know, but thank God for sat-navs and stuff like that. So, yeah, he wrote me this letter. You know, I, think, I think I was numb for a very, very long time after that. And then our dear dog Dino died, and I was with him when we were, he was put down, just me. Just me. I took Dino, who was the same age as me, into this room and and watched the life disappear out of his his body because mum couldn't come in. And I don't honestly say that I blame her for that. But someone had to be there with him. So that was me. And then I went straight back into school after that. And so years went past. And then I met you. And then you said... There's this thing called the Landmark Forum, and it's amazing. And I don't, even when I signed up for it, I didn't know what it was. And the lady said, why are you doing it? I said, well, a friend of mine told me it's amazing. He said, you know what, he's right. <laughs> Congratulations. This is amazing. You should do this. And I said, I'm going to do this. She said, why are you going to do it? What do you want to get out of it? And um, I said, I have no idea, really but I think I'd like to be able to explain myself a bit better. She said, so you'd like to articulate yourself? And I said, yeah, I'd like to be able to articulate myself. I'd like to be able to convey what it is that's inside my head sometimes, because sometimes I just didn't know how to put the words into order to explain how I'm really feeling. And so then I did that. And I remember on the first day, it was great. I'm like, this fucking shit is great. Love this. Second day, by the end, this is a complete load of bullshit. I hate this. He's an asshole. I fucking hate Australians. Really do. Why does it have to be an Australian? I don't hate Australians, by the way. You guys are great. And then on the third day, I remember in the morning, this Irish girl got up and she started sharing about her dad and about he died. And about all these other things, and I was sat in a mood at the front, and I cried for two and a half hours whilst she spoke. And then after she spoke, I just continued crying because it brought stuff up for me. And I managed to dodge a few bullets, and I ended up getting on. I ended up getting up on stage, which was a big thing for me to do—a big thing for anyone to do in front of 150 people. Can't remember what I said. Anyway, next step. I went into the introduction to this program. And the subject came up at one point about my dad. Liz Marley, the subject came up about my dad and she said, well, why don't you write your dad a letter? And I didn't really have anything to say. And I thought it was a stupid fucking idea because the guy's been dead for like, I don't know, 16 years at that point. Like, why am I going to write the guy a letter? What am I going to do, read it to him? No, stupid idea. Anyway. I was living in the same bed at the time. I went home and I wrote that letter. And by the time I got to the fourth line, I wrote the words, I never got to say goodbye. And I cried for another two hours. And then I went to sleep. And that night I had a dream. And it was the first time I'd seen my dad in a very long time. And we were in a purple space. We were in space, but it was purple. And there was a table and there was my mum at the head, my sister, my brother, and my dad sat down. And I joined in the table like... What the hell? What the hell? Like, does anyone else here not think that this is a bit weird, that Dad's here? And the conversation came Well, I said, where have you been? And he said, I've been to the Valley of the Crescent Moon. Of course you have. (laughs) Valley of the Crescent Moon is a place in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's where they went. Anyway... um, I woke up at that dream crying my heart out. And it wasn't over there. It hadn't ended. I told Liz, and I think I read her the letter, read my mum the letter, read my brother, my sister, the letter that I wrote to my dad and what had happened and stuff like that. There was another dream which for the life of me I cannot remember. But then there was the last dream. That was the last time I saw my dad, and this was beautiful in that it was dark, and there's this house, and there's a light on And I walk towards the house and I walk in through the front door and I can hear my mum and my dad speaking in the kitchen. And I didn't go to see them. I don't know why I didn't go to see them. But I went left into this lounge that I'd never been into before. And there was, the light was beaming through these leaded French windows. I mean, beaming through, shafts of light just pouring in. And I remember opening up the windows and stepping outside and there were some picnic tables with my brother and my sister and some children, which back then, I don't even think they had children. My brother certainly didn't, but maybe my sister had. And we, uh, I went over to them and I sat down and I'm looking back, round at, oh, looking back round at this building and there was my dad. And so I walked over to him. And when I got to him, he was as tall as the trees. He was as tall as the building itself. And he bent down, and he uh, picked me up like you do a child. And he brought me up to his shoulder, and he told me that he loved me, that he loves me, and that everything will be okay. And then I woke up, and, I cried. Um, and I guess that's why I need to write my mum
0: a letter. Yeah. <laughs> um. What was in the letter? That I wrote Dad? Yeah.
1: I don't remember much. I just remember I never got to say goodbye because that was the real key thing, <laughs> you know? You
0: didn't keep the letter?
1: I have no idea where it is. It's somewhere. It's somewhere. I don't think I need it. <laughs> That's the the I never got to say goodbyes. All I ever needed to know about that situation, you know, because it was, it was just taken, just like that, from one day everything's normal to the next day everything's not. You know, and we had to move, and and then it was just me and mum, then it was just me and mum, like Alex. I think he moved to Tenerife and Rita was doing whatever it was she was doing wherever she was, dealing with it in her own way because they were 20-year-old children themselves who had just lost their, their dad who they'd had arguments with as teenagers. And, you know, they had no idea how to manage all this emotion, how to make it make sense, you know. And, uh, whether they do or not now, I, I, I never know, no, no, but that's, um, yeah. Oof.
0: The last, uh, 30 years, mm-hmm. 30 plus years since mm-hmm. your dad died,
1: mm-hmm.
0: obviously grief doesn't just disappear. It's 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 an ongoing process. It's mm-hmm. never, you never like, oh, I've, I've done that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously it diminishes over mm-hmm. time, and but you can still... Get used to it. G- you get used to it, yeah. but you can also go back into that place. We've, mm-hmm. we've had tears today speaking mm-hmm. about that very same subject. So, yeah, you spend a long time processing stuff, mm-hmm. reassessing stuff, mm-hmm. dealing with stuff. And especially like early on, at the, at the age of 13, there would have been a lot of lot of st- difficult stuff for you to mm. deal with. Now you're here mm-hmm. at this moment, mm-hmm. what would you say to your 13-year-old self? Oh, just go for it. Just go for it.
1: Just tell them how you feel. Just tell them how you feel. Tell them that you love them. You know? I used to, I was in love so many times, as or infatuated so many times as a, kid but oh I remember falling in love and never doing anything about it maybe maybe that was because of something that happened with my what happened with my dad maybe there was some fear there i'm going to say this that after that thing that happened with my dad when I was in my late teens I did I know for a fact I fell in love I remember the first time I saw that person I Fell in love And we were at college together for two years And And then college ended And then I went off to India And the first time And then the second And then I never saw that person again Maybe briefly But I never said what was really in my head And especially what was in my heart And after that thing that happened with my dad And after that, that Course That introduction leaders program I remember I was going Back to South Africa, because I was, I was a guide back then, you know, I was working in South Africa as a safari guide, I was loving my life, and I just, for the first time, because of the wonder that was Facebook back then, I just reconnected with this girl. She was married, she had kids, I met her, she was only living just down the road, went around to see her and her children, her husband was at work at the time, but it was it was all cool. And I uh, hadn't seen her for so long. And then and then she said, we're actually moving to New Zealand. So I was like, wow. <laughs> moving to New Zealand. But she's got like twin babies that are like 10 months old and the cutest thing in the world. And then another child and another child. And a wonderful life and a wonderful husband. I went to their leaving party. And then that was it. And I got to Heathrow Airport and it might have been whatever time of day it was, I can't remember. I thought, I still haven't done it. So I phoned her and I said, do you, I have to tell you this. I have to. So I told her, I said, the moment I walked into that classroom in Amberley, at Brinsbury College, I fell in love with you. For the very first moment that I saw you, I fell in love with you. And I know that she, I know she liked me too. I think she loved me. But I just didn't have... uh, Was it that I... I had nothing else to lose. I had... I didn't have anything to give. I don't think, you know. I was just protecting myself, I think, from the massive crush that had happened in my life in previous years from losing my dad and never coming to terms with that. But by this point... You know, I was ready for that. I had kind of, I needed to let it go, and I needed to give it away, and I needed the truth to be known. I loved you, you know, and I still do, and I always will. And you're beautiful, and I hope you have a great life. It was really, it was wonderful. It was such a release. Ah. Oh. So that's what I'd say to my 13 year old self. I there's this little boy at school that is always with this little girl. And I want to tell him, just say it. <laughs> <laughs> just say it. The world will still be here after you
0: say those words. You know? What did what did what did Ross's letter say? He was just
1: it was just from the heart, and from a from one twelve-year-old boy to a thirteen-year-old boy. I don't know if he knew what to say. I've probably got that letter somewhere, but he just wanted to let me know how sorry he was. You know, mm. yeah. He just wanted. To. I I think Alan Duffel tried to call me that night. Poor boy, Alan Duffel. Poor boy. He, he, Why is he poor boy? Lost he, his coat. Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. It, Everything was always, he was always made a joke of as a kid, you know. He had a hard time, and I didn't have that. I mean, Jesus Christ, I am trying to keep as low a profile as I possibly can. The last thing I need is you, acting like a dick, becoming a magnet for just about every bully in the area, you know. (laughs) So I don't really want to be associated with you, even though you live like five houses down the road, and there's not another kid around for miles, you know. So just fucking... Just walk away, just fair place for Alan Duffel, you know he never walks away, but he was always beaten,' always beaten
0: what, are you bringing up Alan Duffel because he just popped into my head, I mentioned yeah, Ross did he did he say something sweet to you about I, your dad or no,
1: no, no, he phoned up to tell to to ask how how Dad was, and I think I told him that he was dead, and then I just started crying, and I think I hung up the phone and stuff like that. <laughs> Poor Alan Duffel I had to deal with that, you know. Yes, poor lad. Poor lad. I did see him, obviously. I was still living in the same street, I've seen him for a while, but then we, as I said, I just didn't want to be a target. It was always a target. As I said, I was six foot two by the age of eight, nine, ten, just permanently tall and um, different from the other children or special as my... <laughs> As my closest friends would tell me. Um, anyway.
0: yeah. I mean, it's just through you, what you've spoken about it, like, and I know this is this, almost saying the obvious, mm-hmm. but your experience, what your experience says is that, to me, is that I think through the lens of seeing it through a young child, mm-hmm. You know, that's approaching adolescence, or is just going through adolescence, just pro- just starting it. That through that lens, it's actually like, of course, that's forgivable. That you you have a long, um, uh, a long history of having to deal with the loss of your father, mm-hmm. and everyone's and everyone will be like, yeah, of course. He was 13, or 12, mm-hmm. um, just going on 13. And that's absolutely fine for you to carry that grief for a very long time and to still be carrying that. I think if, if it happens when you're an adult, you're given it a finite amount of time to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So you could be 20, mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, I lost my dad when I was 20, and mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm 45 now and I'm still reeling in it. People would be a lot less forgiving and be like, oh, no, 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 no you 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 only get a couple of years to deal with grief mm. maximum yeah. um and i think i mean interesting is a terrible word because it's just like oh this is it's interesting but i think the the fact that if you're a person that's developed their own personality but but young enough to be a child mm-hmm. then it's forgivable to be like oh yeah that was that's traumatic mm. And yeah, of course, you are a developing brain still and there's lots of stuff going on for you. But, you know, I think l- love is love, right? Mm-hmm. And if you lose someone significant, then it sticks with you forever. Mm-hmm. I can still see pictures of my nan and grandad who died when, you know, at in inverted commas, appropriate times. They died of old age. Mm-hmm. They di- They didn't die out of the blue. It wasn't early. But the memories of every single time I had with them, um, all the wonderful things that we went through, still make me cry now mm. when I think about when I think about how wonderful it was, how innocent I was, how freeing they were, mm-hmm. and there's some there's layered stuff when you're a kid as well, about complicated home lives and mm-hmm. the, the the kind of respite that I got from being with them. And yeah, I was I was a child. I guess I I guess what's I guess what I'm trying to say is is that like, you know, whether you're whether you're 13 or whether you're 43, you lose someone and it's that's close to you, it's just as significant mm. um I just think like if you're younger there's regret of the things you, actually I'm not sure it is regret. I think, it's, I think it's misplaced regret. A lot of the times you want to say, I loved that person and I told them every day. Mm-hmm. And then you still don't feel like you told them enough. Mm-hmm. And even if you didn't tell them you loved them, you're still like, well, I didn't tell them enough. Mm-hmm. There's always this, but what if they were still around? I could do this. Yeah. I missed out.
1: Is it? I think I read this recently probably on the toilet late at night just <laughs> scrolling through instagram and that it's like grief is not being able to tell someone that you love them that's what grief is though not being able to tell the, that person anymore
0: i think this is time to end the podcast
1: do i owe you any money i mean this is really good yeah, I, mean, I feel like I like a just therapy, therapy. Yeah, yeah it really was i mean there's stuff that i can't even remember talking about but i think have <laughs> i've i've spoken about things I haven't spoken about ever ever good, good.
0: you know yeah I'm, I'm 100 pounds an hour um, <laughs> you always were cheap Jay yeah I know <laughs> well it goes up if you want a happy finish
1: <laughs> no no I'm
0: alright I think it's clear from the conversation that Theo, Theo and I are, are close um, although we don't get to see each other very often and I really connected with him over the loss of his father being a dad myself um, when he talks about the dream he had and he was picked up and he comes over and picks him up like a toddler like that's going to be a big memory for kids right and it really took me to that place and it made him feel very sad um I can't remember if I mentioned this in the podcast or not, but I grew up without a father. And so any mention of uh, anything father-related usually makes me easily upset. Not in a bad way, you know, just I'll I'll shed a tear or two. I'm easy to make cry as it is. Um, But I really got that in this. He was really in it, really present with it. And it's something that he carries around... Obviously, all the time, but he has it; it's there for him, and he's he, he's he's comfortable with that grief. And I and I really want to thank him actually for sharing so intimately all of those stories. Like he was he he's he wasn't afraid at any point to share any any personal thing with all of us, as well as just with me. I hope there was people out there that got something out of that conversation. Just his openness and. willingness to share. That's the whole point of the podcast, to have these conversations. Obviously, the the, the original podcast was recorded in um, April 2022. And uh, I'm now putting it out in August. Um, His mum is still going strong and he's still looking after her, which must be a challenge considering he's got jobs to do and you know live his life with his wife and all that kind of stuff on a personal note if you if you are if you're in a situation where someone in your life has Alzheimer's or dementia i highly recommend you look at the work that the life changes trust did in Scotland unfortunately for the people anywhere else they didn't work there but it was a really progressive way of they invested lots of money into different projects that looked in how to kind of slow down the effects of dementia or did slow down the effects of dementia and I personally worked on a film project that that um, we, we spoke to some people that went to art classes which, you know, really, really slowed down that effect and men, and mental health for both the partner and the person with dementia was really transformational for both of them um and they were they were really thankful that kind of thing so uh, yeah if you're if you're looking for something to read up on um life changes trust really great anyway till next time thanks for listening